the first thing that comes to mind with people with builders is how much let's take away totally the idea of how much what are the what are the key questions to ask a builder you are listening to the property developer podcast your home for tips ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level now here's your host justin getty Thanks for tuning in to the Property Developer Podcast. It's great to have you back with us. I thought I'd start off the show with a quick update on where we're at with our project. This week we signed contracts with the bank, which has taken about three months to get sorted out, so it was nice to finally put pen to paper. And we've booked in our bore piling guys to get in and put the retaining wall in along the eastern boundary. So hopefully that'll get done before Christmas, and then the concrete can set for a couple of weeks. Then the heavy machinery can get in in the middle of January and start excavating, which will be terrific. Today I'm talking with Jeff Wood, another developer who's doing developments in the same area as me. Jeff has a really interesting background in that he's done quite a few developments over the last 10 to 15 years, including locks, units, apartments, and some commercial developments. Jeff has an engineering and finance background, so he brings a really interesting lens to the development process. We cover quite a bit of ground in our conversation, including some really interesting questions to ask your builder that perhaps you may not have considered before. And also, given Jeff's background, we talk about how you can structure your finances for maximum opportunity with lenders. I started off by asking Jeff if he could own any type of car, what would it be? It'd have to be a, uh, a Ford XLRA supercharger. Ford XLRA supercharger? Yes. I thought you might have gone for something a bit more exotic. Yeah, you can go for things a bit more exotic, um, but I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that money and buy a, a, a yacht instead, a, a more expensive yacht. Okay, so that's my poison. So you're yeah, you're not a car guy, you're a boat guy. Oh, I'm, I'm everything, but uh, you know, you only do so much with certain things. So. All right, Jeff, can you give us a bit of a background on your developing journey, how you got into developing, and what you've been up to? I've been, um, I guess, uh, brought into this sphere back in the early 2000s with clients with my background in finance and the business in finance I come across very many developments and developers and financing and options ever since I started in this area and obviously being immersed in that on a day-to-day basis you can't help but understand how it works and from that obviously a natural progression to um, dip my toe in the water and start off down that down that uh, area my first I guess purchase was back in um, it would have been May 2003, bought a property down the eastern suburbs in Mirrorbark for back then it was $185,000. $185, that was a dual lock back then and um, subdivided that and actually bought it in May for 185000 and settled it in two months later with a loan of $232,000 on it. So I managed to uh, get a bit more out of the bank than just the contract price, but that was all part of the journey. Started back back then and over the time obviously started at that uh, end of the spectrum and you know slightly moved up up the up the scale over time and there's no shortcuts and it's uh, incremental increases and every time you're learning something new and as the developments get more complex and bigger those little parts of the development become more complex and have uh, requirements of better bigger more specific personnel and, and expertise and yeah every day is a learning experience so can you give us a bit of a profile of some of the Developments that you completed along the way? Nine townhouses, apartment block in Ringwood, it's about 12, 12 there, various dual locks and other bits and pieces, commercial buildings, buying, renovating, um, fitting out commercial with restaurants, that type of thing. 
So, so pretty broad spread. Yeah, look, I wouldn't call it too broad in the sense of uh, you know what it is. It's it's in many ways they're, they're quite similar, um, but obviously you know you're not talking at the back end, at the top end, commercial construction. That's that's a whole new gamut and whole new um, expertise, if you like. And what do you enjoy about developing, creating something, seeing something go from an idea to uh, on paper and um, yeah, just trying to get it right. Think, looking at it in terms of if I was living in it, what would I want? Making every square metre count, you know, minimise the wastage, minimise the um, inefficiencies of a design, you know, maximise the livability of it. Um, bigger, faster, better house or development for, for the obvious reason. You can walk away from it going, I did the best there. So every, every development you learn something from it and little bits and pieces where you pick up here, there, and ideas, and you incorporate those where you can, when you can, um, obviously for the end result being a good product. And the last project that you finished was a nine-unit site? Yeah, nine, nine townhouses out in Murrellbark, um, and um, yeah, that was completed um, early this year, and... Um, yeah, that, that was a good result. Obviously, with the changes to the planning scheme, what's interesting now, that having nine, uh, nine houses on it, be it seven two-bedder and two three-bedders, that's no longer possible under the current planning scheme. It's maximum four, basically four palatial houses. So therein lies the challenge moving forward is to, uh, in an economy sense or a social sense, where are we going to get our houses from? Where's the stock going to come from? I see moving forward that we'll have the op- the options of either apartments or palatial houses. There'll be no single level detached little two bedroom houses. It'll it'll be that of a, a generous three bedroom house, double lock up garage, or an apartment. Um, so you've got to adapt and change with the times. But I just feel for the community and say, well, where the, where are we going to get the houses for retirees to downgrade to? I can't change politics can't change the politicians, so we've just got to chip away at it and do the best we can. Tell me, what have you seen change from when you started developing to now? Change would be more more documentation, more specifications, higher levels. And um, in terms of that, look, it can be a good thing. I mean, obviously, you've now got energy ratings of six stars. You've got water tanks. You've got all the other things to go with it. Um, yeah, great outcome, but, you know, the ultimately... That, that's reflected in the price. Uh, whereas, you know, you go back many years ago, I gather back in the 70s where you had a, uh, or even 60s where you had your, your detached house and your tin shed when you could afford in the backyard and no insulation and minimal appliances. And to build that today, you couldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to build that today. And uh, incrementally over time, if you look at that, private open space being introduced after that point in time, GST introduced in 2000, that's another increase in costs. Energy ratings, 2004, with the introduction of the more energy rating uh, requirements, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but people are going to appreciate and accept the fact of the additional cost to the end user. Um, uh, look, double glazing is fantastic, but there is additional cost. On the, I guess, the construction side, there's now more requirements to make it MBN ready, more red tape more administration, very little leadership and direction into outcomes. It's more of a case left to the, um, the devices of various organisations 
own advice or views and the umpire in the day is VCAT to make the final decision that that ends up with um, ultimately longer drawn out planning processes construction time frames and ultimately costs involved in building it constructing it finishing it who pays for it general public yeah look it should be a lot quicker that's my view that people have bring their personal taste to the table you've got local town planners and council who bring their personal views and preferences to design and town planning and that holds things up rather than looking at the planning schedule and ticking off whether or not it meets the planning schedule and moving it on. Well, that's a good point. I mean, although the federal and state government are standing up wanting to do reviews of all these things, ultimately it's the local government that implement the policy and make those decisions. But Ultimately, the only people that are making any, any um, benefit out of it, the banks with more holding costs and more interest on our on our loans, which ultimately hits the bottom line at public punter at the end, buying the properties. So, look, I think um, I'm not about to try and change the world or change governments. You, you know, lose all my hair over that. But um, you've just got to deal with the environment you work in. But then again, that's the environment. That's the opportunity. Yeah, and as you were saying, with the likely increase or talk of an increase of the GST up to 15%, you can probably expect another bump in house prices. Well, it's fundamental. That's, that's, that'll hit the bottom line cost in house prices. And as much as we're, we're now requiring more specifications as a current review by the state government for light, light in apartment blocks where there'll be further constraints and requirements placed upon them, further consultants to get it right, uh, and get it uh, vetted and verified further costs um, and ultimately that's the that's going to hit the bottom line of the price of the property at the end of the day. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on or what you've got in the pipeline? I've got a, an application at the moment at the council and waiting for a, an outcome there. Um, obviously with it being a council I won't go into too much detail but we'll wait and see. We'll probably be uh, at VCAT next year and um, see how we're judged on the merits then and then once we've ticked that box, we can then get on with maybe building it. But until we get a, a permit, how long's a piece of string? So is it just that one project? Uh, no, there's three others coming through, but predominantly we're waiting for this project to uh, to um, provide the, the direction that we need for all involved so that we can then bring on stream our other three projects along the same lines. And therefore we've got the line drawn in the sand and we can move forward with that. But obviously with the introduction of the Victorian planning provisions last year under the auspices of um, Minister Guy, um, we're left to VCAT and others to determine ultimately the outcome of where these things end up. And uh, it's July last year and we're nearly 80 months later with no further direction. So again, uh, there's uncertainty, there's delays, that's the environment we deal with, we work in. Yeah, well, at least you know when you go to VCAT, you're going to get a fairly impartial hearing and it'll be judged on its merits against the planning scheme. We'd hope so. <laughs> well, I think a little bit more so than most of the councils. Have Absolutely. Absolutely. But there, therein lies the problem with the... Um, if you set down a policy which has got clearly defined outcomes and boundaries, then it should be measured and... Um, reviewed on that basis, not on the basis of political outcomes. And again, that just hits the bottom line and affects everyone in the community. So that's the problem with, I see the biggest problem with um, 
this whole industry, there needs to be leadership and direction along lines that if people are unhappy with the planning policies that they actually themselves implement and approve uh, rather than uh, delaying the processes they should at the front end make those planning planning uh, requirements and planning uh, guidelines as they want them but again uh, that's government and that's um, that's where we are today. So what do you reckon you've learned about yourself over the last 10 years while you've been involved in developing? Well there's about myself, where you just have to um, take it on the chin and just keep chipping away. There's no shortcuts, there's no easy ways of doing things. And um, I know that's not really about myself, but really you have to be that sort of person to, although you might disagree with the environment that you work in and disagree, you might disagree with the, um, the decisions they're making, you've got to accept the fact that that's the environment you're working in and, hey, that's the opportunity, make the most of it. Apart from that, there's, uh, you know, there's no shortcuts, really. you just got to keep chipping away at it all. And do you reckon there's a key skill that developers need to have? Patience. Patience and probably just a good backing, good equity to get you through. And more patience. And more patience. <laughs> um, you know, as I said, you can't, you know, you can dedicate your life to trying to change councils or local government or planning, but uh, that's a whole activity in itself that will take up and consume your time. So uh, that's not for me. Yeah, for me, it's all about managing people, being able to keep all your consultants and everyone on your team playing along, getting things done, delivering stuff on time. That's that's a good point, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I guess, one of the key things is to have good people around you, identify the good people and bring them on board. I mean, I don't mind people. I want to be and have people around me that are wanting to learn. They can make one mistake. Let's learn from that. Let's get on with it. But over the years, I've found some some consultants do the same mistakes over and over again, and hence uh, they're learning on your time, if you like, or whether it be learning on your time or gaining from your time. Who knows? You know, I don't think it's I don't think developing is rocket science. It's just a case of having a methodical approach to it and um, doing the best you can to keep it moving. So you've obviously used a lot of people over the years in terms of your team. Have you? changed from project to project have you settled on a kind of core team now or are you still looking for the dream team no i think it's, a, it's just an evolving um, situation depending on what type of project you're dealing with you need a different set of skills a different different type and quantum of a certain professional if you like to give you an extreme example the difference between drawing a, a dual lock house in the backyard to that of an apartment type building is you know miles apart also the complexity of, of running those different projects. I mean, someone just drawing a draftsman, which is fine, drawing a property in the backyard doesn't really have the set of skills in terms of the planning requirements, nor do they necessarily need that, but at the higher end projects, you need the right people around you. So do you ever sit down at the end of a project with people that have been involved in the development, be they the draftee or the engineer and assess how they performed, or is that just a decision that you make yourself about whether they get rolled over to the next project? Which is a case of how, how, how we work together on um, the project at the time, and if I felt it went well, that's great. Um, and it's a bit of a working relationship. You might go to them and talk about another project you're dealing with and want some feedback, and they're willing to give it and help you with it, that's great. So uh, in terms of that, it's um, I guess that's one of the keys in this is to get the good people around you. And when I say good, it's not a case of having to pay top dollar or get a top six legal firm around you. You need people that have actually been in the trenches, 
done the work, been involved, and got the hands dirty. And it's only those people that I find, uh, you know, have the experience. And how do you find those people? Is that a combination of, of experience and referrals? Combination just really through my network of my existing clients and others, and I ask around. It's just the same as you, Justin. I might say, Justin, who would you recommend as X, Y, Z, I'm after this? Or how did you find your builder, Justin? Or how did you find your engineer, you know, and get your feedback on it? And that's that's something that as a someone in the same industry, you know, I value your feedback on a consultant or a person or a in, in a sense of their, their their services and whatnot they provide and that's where I, I pull out the yellow pages and look it up and I look at the go through my referral networks to get the answers yes I definitely ask people that I know who are involved in developing for their recommendations on people that they've used it doesn't always work but usually you get a pretty good lead on someone yes well that's that's it and I think you, you know you get the same feedback from others that have used the same people and usually if they're good at what they do it'll be praises all around from everybody is there one key person on the team i think it's a combination of a few you know a combination of it's getting the right people around the table and all those people combined is what makes it what it is not one particular person necessarily stands out as the key person it's it's trying to fit it all together with all the, the people whether it be a planner whether it be a consultant whether it be an engineer, you've just you get you're seeking out specific people with specific specific skills to look after those various areas. So you know, obviously one of the big ones is when you get to construction. One of the biggest ones is the is obviously the builder himself, but that's you know part of the process. When would you start talking to your builder? Uh, oh, talking to the builder probably. It's an ongoing. It's an ongoing exercise. I mean, if um, I guess initially the the feedback the builder can give me, if I've got the question, is indicatively, what's the type of construction do you do here? What's the types of construction that could come out with the same the same result? I mean, when you're building single level houses, it's residential building. With all respect, it's pretty straightforward. Your, your other ones that might include a basement or um, uh, medium density type construction. But over time, you sort of get to know what those things are and know that you might be referring back to your builder on certain, you know, what's what's the latest cladding items you might be using or what are you using for your waterproofing, how are you changing it. But really, it's sort of ongoing, I guess. Yeah, it is. It's ongoing with the builder that, um, you know, you're getting that feedback. And I know we've had previous discussions when I asked you for some tips about Choosing the builder and you had some really good suggestions on questions to ask them. I thought we might run through some of those. Yeah, well, look, I guess the first thing that comes to mind with people, with builders, is how much. But really, the devil's in the detail. It's, it's not about getting... It is about getting the right answers, but it's more importantly asking the right questions. And that is that... Let's take away totally the idea of how much. What are the, what are the key questions to ask a builder? key question to ask the builder would be, for example... Let's start at the top. How many projects have you built in the last 12 months and the 12 months before that time? How many staff do you have now? Um, Who are their names? What are their roles? How many project managers do you have? And the project manager on my so-called development, how many other projects will they be looking after? Just mine or 10 or 12 others? How long has that project manager been in the company? 
How long does the project manager envisage staying with the company? More importantly, even more, is if you get out and when a job is being constructed and talk to some of the trades and you, you ask how's it going and if they're all happy, it's a good ship. If they're disgruntled, or you ask why and they say we're not getting paid, that should be alarm bell number one whenever that happens. And as part of the initial questions to the builder, which come back in writing, ask them, what do you pay your trades? Seven days, 14 days, 30 days, 60 days? Obviously the builder can say whatever they want on paper, but over time that'll certainly come out to whether it's true or not, because if you ask the builder, if you ask your trades what are they being paid and it reconciles with the builder, well, they're spot on. Similarly too, if um, trades are unhappy and are 60, 90 days out and are unhappy, and in, in the initial brief the builder said he pays 30 days, well, the alarm bell should be ringing loud and clear. And they're the type of things to ask. Ask the question, how many, how many legal disputes have you been in the last 12 months, 24 months? There's nothing wrong with that. They all have disputes whether they're, they're right or wrong. Clients might try it on or try something. And you'll be, I find it uh, interesting that those that are organised reply in writing with the exact answers you know, to my questions. Those that aren't so organised don't answer the questions or don't come back as a complete package. And therein lies the first in indication that if you're giving them a project, you want them to be organised, well, you can ask these questions. If they're going to answer the questions, well, I'm not going to use you. And those that are answering the questions are usually organised and uh, good at what they do, which is, you know, as much as people say, well, you've got a contract with the builder, if, a, if the builder's got a problem, it's your problem too even though there might be contracts and clauses and penalties, end of the day, if the builder's got a problem, it's your problem. Therefore, you don't want to have any surprises for the builder either. So wherever you can, highlight things, and the devil's in the detail. If it's not on the plans, it's not in the project. So write it on the plans so when he puts it out to tender to his subbies, it's all there in writing. There's no problems with it. So there's a whole gamut of information you can ask the builder which doesn't even relate to how much, which for you and I is the most important thing because if it's delayed from a surprise or something else, then it's our problem and it's costing us money and costing us time. Yeah, and I think one of the other questions you suggested I ask was how long the back office staff had been employed, so the finance person or the operations manager. Well, that's, that's just it because if a... If a company's got high staff turnover, why are the staff coming and going? I mean, imagine halfway through your project if the quantity surveyor left or the accountant left or whatever. It raises questions. Whereas if a builder's got a good team around him and it's a solid team that's been there for a while, well, that indicates that it's a happy team. And again, you can't afford to have problems on your, on your construction for the obvious reason. Yeah, look, I think it's a really good point because, as you say, a lot of developers are just interested in the bottom line and they get their quote responses back and they're basically just looking for the cheapest option and once they find a number that they're happy with, they kind of sign up with the builder rather than doing a bit more due diligence on them. Well, yeah, I mean, the cost-effectiveness the cost effectiveness of project is always important, but, you know, there might be one in 20 projects that you might get caught with a problem with a builder and that could cost you a lot. So that I place just as much importance on that aspect as the as the bottom line, if you like. So now you have a background in finance. So do you get involved with project financing, or have you got some advice and 
suggestions for developers out there when it comes to getting their financial affairs in place? In most cases, people consider their account, their uh, income tax returns, financial statements of one of getting it done for tax purposes, going to your accountant, getting it finalised and getting it in and getting that tax return. I can't stress how important it is, like anything, you need to plan what you're doing in the next couple of days, next couple of years. You need to plan where do you want to be with your financials. There's a, there's a few ways of being able to present financials by the accountant and set them up such that it's more optimised for getting finance, construction finance from the banks. And what would that be? It's, for example, do you, for a particular project, you've obviously got a particular project in a particular company structure or unit trust. Now, when you're building in that trust structure and um, maintaining the project, how is that distributed back to the holding company or the, the main company that's the trading entity, if you like, and that can make a, a big impact. I mean, basically, if banks see on your tax returns that you did a development, bought it, sold it, and sold it, in, ma in most respects, the, the banks will consider that to be a, a one-off type scenario, even more difficult for people starting out where it's a case of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. I've just started my first project. I've just finished my first project, and after two or three years, there, there's the answer of one year, but the banks still don't consider that to be core income because they see it as a one-off development type stream. They're the types of things that um, you structure into the way you, you set yourself up. Mind you, I'm not a, a an accountant, but I've certainly reviewed and looked at quite a few different structures and uh, see them all, all the time. But you know, I can't in the current climate, especially with banks, is, is, is it's even more so more important these days to have that planning done. I won't call it financial planning because it's not. It's your tax and accounting planning in terms of what do you want to do with your developing and construction and that can help quite significantly with your proposal to the bank or lender of your choice that you might be using for construction. As I'm dealing with banks on a daily basis and construction funding on a daily basis, there's different different structures that come across better than other structures. I mean, if you're trading out of one, one company structure uh, for your development, well, that's all that the banks are looking at. I mean, does your development structure pay a project management fee back to your holding company or your family trust on a regular basis and then by reflected in a, um, a an income coming back to the family trust on an annualised basis in your income tax returns rather than having a big lumpy payment at the end which they then consider to be, hang on, this is just a, a result of a property being sold or property development being sold. You need to structure your affairs differently. And so is finding someone that can help out with that just another case of asking around? Because I'm sure the accountant on the corner is not the right guy to be helping out on that kind of stuff. In the work that I do, that's what I do in advising my customers, my, my developers, my builders, to the point of having the background of developing myself and the milestones and timelines to go through the process. I advise them on that. I mean, for example, the, the critical nature of the back end, once you, you plan a subdivision, and you get that organised through the titles office and out the back end, well, you need to get the bank organised because a week delay here or two weeks there all adds up. And at the back end, when you've 
finish the development, you've got your debt facilities maxed out, you're burning interest at the top rate, you know, by the sheer number, if you work out on a daily rate what it costs on interest, imagine, you know, a couple of days here, a couple of days there can add up to a lot of a lot of money. In the same way, at the front end, um, at the beginning of a construction finance, I mean, the question you've got to ask yourself is, well, who can tell me about how the banks work and how to make this work for me in my drawdown payments in terms of getting it lined up and pushing it through to banks to make sure everyone's ready? How many times have you had problems dealing with the business bank or whoever that's not across it or doesn't have a priority of looking after your um, your project? I mean, every day is costing you interest, burning interest. And if people want to find out more about construction finance and how you might be able to help them, Jeff, they can go to myfirstproperty.com.au. That's right. We're based down at Moorabbin. Um, or if you like, just um, give us a call as well and um, we'll go from there. Now, when you go looking for a project, do you have a type of project in mind in terms of whether it's a four-unit development or a 10-unit development and then try and find a site that will fit that? Or do you more wait to see what comes on the market when you start searching and think, what can I fit on that site? Uh, that's a good question. I guess my answer to that is nowadays with the changes of the planning scheme, it's uh, pretty well defined of what you can and can't do. And the old, I consider the old nine-unit townhouse development is basically, I see it as a thing of the past in the infield development because typically that would be a neighbourhood residential zone block nowadays where the council was saying that you can only have two dwellings. Um, so you're only left with other, I guess, higher density style blocks to look at. Um, and therein lies the, the search, I guess, of what's there and, you know, driving up and down various... Um, Suburbs and knowing where those are, you just you're always watching and looking and just seeing what's happening. Keep your ear close to the ground, and when something comes up, do your analysis, do your um, feasibility on it, and um, either have a crack at it or let it go. Um, you know, but certainly with the changes of the planning scheme, has certainly made that um, research a lot more defined as to what you can and can't get on a site. I mean, sure, you could put nine, ten houses on a high density site. But the way the market mechanics work, it drives the price up that uh, you're talking at more higher density housing than that to make it um, commercially viable. So, And so do you stay in touch with local agents regularly or is it more a case of when you're ready to get into the market, you get in touch with them and put out the feelers? No, all the time. I mean, I've, I've got my agents that I always talk to and watch what they do and they give me a call or keep me on their database and it's a, it's a working relation, ongoing working relationship. You can't... I find I can't just um, disappear and come back on because, you know, it comes up. You might have, sometimes it, when it might rain three or four opportunities at once or it might not. It might be just, this is the way the market is. But clearly, I think um, moving forward with the changes of the planning scheme, it's certainly further defined and sharpened what you can and can't do. So in many ways, I guess you could say that some of those opportunities are further reduced moving forward. Yeah, okay. And so, which leads in when you're saying you might get four or five opportunities come your way, how do you like to or how have you structured your deals in the past in terms of do you bring on money partners, do you do joint ventures, or do you just use your own equity and cash to the project? Look, in the past I've had 
joint ventures, equity partners. I've still got those who want to get involved, and it depends on the, the type of development and where I'm at with my own structures to say, right, I'll just continue doing it myself, or might uh, expand that with um, equity partners or joint ventures, just depending on you know what type it is and where it's at. Um, there's no real clear, you know, clear. I mean, ultimately, the ideal way is you've got enough equity, just keep doing it yourself. There's less um, management of certain items, and uh, when markets go up, everyone's happy. But when markets go down, that's that's when everyone's colours shine out and where people want and what expect expectations are. I mean, so some people you could talk to and all they see is money in their eyes, and um, when it when it doesn't turn out so good or the market turns, they're the first ones to uh, start complaining. But ultimately, just do it on your own. Yeah, which can be hard because there is a bit of cash required to do developing properly. There's no cash is king, and that's what it's all about. You've got to have the equity, you've got to have the backing because you're forever putting your hand in your pocket paying bills. And the developer gets paid last. That's it. And you're, you're holding the baby all the way through. So... From that point of view, yeah, you got to be, you know, you got to have your equity, you got to be cash flows right, and uh, look when the market turns. If you go, if you live through the experience of market turning, you certainly, um, you know, if you can live through it, that's challenging. And then you realise that that's what um, makes a person long longevity in that area of business what it is. For those overnight, when the boom times are great, everyone's happy, but when it turns. Or it goes nasty. Those that aren't cashed up, or those that are leveraged, fall over. And um, yeah, again, there's no shortcuts. There's no silver bullets. It's just chipping away at it all. You know, there's no buying brand new cars. Some you see some people getting into this industry. They they've already um, used up all their profits buying all their cars and things, and they haven't made turn even the first plot of soil. So. All right, well, I've pretty much asked all the questions I wanted to ask Jeff. Thank you very much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. And we might come back another day and talk through some of these other areas. Look forward to it. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, well, what a really great conversation that was with Jeff. I think Jeff's done some really interesting things with his developing over the last 10 or so years. Here's three lessons that I picked up from our conversation. One, when you're settling on a builder, just don't focus on the lowest price. Dig a little deeper and find out more about them. Jeff outlined a series of questions which can help you determine whether you are dealing with the right builder. I use these questions when deciding on our builder for the townhouse development, and it was a very instructive discovery process that sheds light on how your builder operates. Two, give some deeper consideration to how you structure your finances with a view to obtaining funding for future projects. Just don't go and get your tax returns done as a compliance exercise. Be a bit more strategic in how you treat your financials. And if need be, find a professional that can give you strong advice on how to best structure your returns. And three, work within the planning system that you operate in. And accept that you won't always see eye to eye with the local council that is controlling the application process. You just have to be more determined to succeed and be prepared to take it to a tribunal if you think you have the planning scheme on your side. That's it for another episode of the Property Developer Podcast. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating if you enjoyed the show or leave a comment on the website at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next show and until then, may all your applications be approved quickly. 
you've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.